Hello, I'm Mary Portis and this is The Kindness Economy, a podcast that looks at the new values driving the businesses of tomorrow. People, planet and profit. In that order, it's the future. Are you ready for better? What if each of us gave more to the world than we took from it? This is a question posed by the inspirational Jacqueline Novogratz, CEO of global non-profit venture capital firm Acumen, whose goal is to tackle global poverty by entrepreneurial means. And I believe that all business leaders I talk to on this podcast are asking this question of themselves and the companies they create, in different ways, of course. But at their core, they believe in adding, not subtracting. How do we answer this question of ourselves as individuals, though? Because making informed decisions about the companies we buy from in a world where we are so listening to marketing spin and some very relaxed attitudes to the truth is creating a minefield where even the best intentions can be misplaced. But it's important for each of us to keep centering those four words, however small a way. Yes, the impact of our own personal decisions can feel microscopic in a world where economic and belief systems seem so large, but knit all those micro-actions into a whole, and we can each powerfully contribute to change. On this podcast, we've explored some of the easy wins we can all create. Switch your energy provider to someone who really cares. Invest your money with a bank that's investing in the right things. Buy clothes and foods that don't leach our planet's rich ecosystem. But there's also an important internal shift we must all make. For so long, we've thought it's either we or me. Either sacrifice yourself on the pyre of good works and strong ethics, or plunge mindlessly into the pool of overconsumption and negative impact. Now, as you know, if you listen to previous episodes here, I honestly believe the world is divided into the give a fucks and the don't give a fucks. But that's the headline. And the reality is that the landscape really is much more nuanced than it has ever been. Me and we no longer have to be in opposition. They can be in harmony. The interests of the individual are fusing with those of society. What is best for we is best for me and vice versa. Businesses are having to pay more attention to this because it's increasingly borne out in the attitude of customers, millennials and Gen Zs in particular, But on a personal level, too, we can each make the shift to encompassing both me and we within us. None of us is going to be perfect. And very few of us can know that every purchasing decision we make creates positive impact. But we can keep contributing in whatever small way to the creation of the kindness economy, through the ways in which we both spend our money, and also how we live our lives, from what we buy to how we communicate and interact and support the people around us. What if each of us gave more to the world than we took from it? Jacqueline's answer, everything would change. I agree. Together, we can create huge positive change as the individual actions of me knit powerfully into the overall impact of we. I'm Mary Portis and this is The Kindness Economy. The Kindness Economy is brought to you by Dell Technologies. Who do I have sharing some light with me this morning? 
down the Zoom pipe. Hi, Mary. It's Paula here from Dell. Lovely weather, isn't it, Paula? It is very warm today. It's gorgeous. Is it too hot for you? Well, I'm a Brazilian, so... What's a Brazilian? I'm British and Brazilian. Hey, I love that one. It's like those groovy names, that, no offence, but they have the dogs now, don't they? You've got to work out what... Yes. <laughs> I'm a schnoodle. Oh, oh, that's schnauzer and poodle. I'm a... Oh, a shit poo. Oh, yeah, we know that's a shit zoo and a boat, whatever it is. And now you're a Brazilian. So, Paula, tell me what's happening at Dell. Let me talk to you today about our technology advisors. Running a small business, it's complex, takes courage, takes great creativity and perseverance. You need to be very bold. You need to run into a world of unknowns. And technology does not have to be that complex or daunting for you. We have technology advisors that have a lot of business knowledge and you can be sure to make the right choice wherever you're doing, no matter the stage your business is at, we can ensure that you have someone to talk to and advise you on your technology choices so that your business, whatever you're doing, can go and reach absolutely new heights. And it is lonely when you're a small business and on your own. Remember that you've got someone to talk to. So to find out more, go to dell.co.uk forward slash small biz. Later on, I'll be talking to Juliet Davenport from Good Energy. But first, she's here. She's in with me. She's rocking it. It's Emily, (laughs) who's going to be telling us something about, well, you know, what's happening out there in the world this week in the kindness economy. Do you know what? We're going to talk about something. It's a bit serious, this one, but it's important. Um, So the co-op have been the latest company to come forward and say that they are offering staff who've experienced pregnancy loss, flexible paid leave, time off for medical appointments as part of a support package. Um, it's something we do here at Portas. And I think it's just, you know, it's it's so, it's simple, but it's amazing how many companies don't and how many women have to go through loss, potentially IVF, and they just sort of never get the support. And they have to take sick days. And actually they've come forward and said, no, this is a fact of life. We're supporting it. And they're also going a step further and they're equipping all their managers on, with a guide of how to provide like the proper, blah, with the guide of how to provide appropriate, practical and emotional... Oh, I can't talk, sorry. All right, keep going. You're getting emotional, love. She's getting emotional. So a guide. I'll go again. A guide to provide practical emotional, practical support. Um, support. Um, maybe I need one just on how to talk properly. I, I love the co-op. We need to get them on this show. I know, it's co-op. Oh, yeah. I know, I love yeah, the co-op. Yeah, yeah. It's a woman running it, by the yeah. way. No, no, <laughs> like, no coincidence Orbs. there. And they do lovely things. I love the little badge on, you know, chat to me if you're lonely. They've yeah. got a time to chat badge that people do in the deliveries. They've also started to grow um, food around the sites, around the, the, where the, oh, you know, sweet. instead of it being a really dry, old, you know, concrete outside, they're actually putting where they can grow fresh produce around their That's stores. So nice. I just, they seem very innovative. They're one of the biggies doing well. We must exactly. get them in. Of course, they were founded on great principles. They were. Also, their logo looks cool. Doesn't like, you it? see people walking around with a bag. I yeah. think that looks really cool. Co-op, we're loving you. We're going to call you. Come on down. Right, <laughs> next one. Okay, next one. So, I'm saying P-I-V-R. It's probably some fancy acronym and I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, but let's just go with that. Either PIVR or P-I-V-R. Um, but basically, they understand that everyone, as soon as something breaks, they'll chuck it away. So, they're helping people um, if you've got a faulty washer a dryer or whatever but they say you phone up and then you get walked through you actually learn and you it's someone who's experienced who actually properly helps you repair things so you can be on the phone it's not 
you know, you sort of come away like feeling like you've been on a little workshop. That was oh such my a nice God, idea. I love the idea of yeah. that because I can tell you the times on my washing machine, the things that broke down during COVID and I was <laughs> on my own doing this. <laughs> and I did learn a lot, but I had to put on those YouTube videos and invariably be a man in Germany them. going, so there we have the washing machine. But also they tell you about their life or something before you. Like, yeah, don't want to know. Don't want to know. Get on with it. Or American ones where you just think, this is so not the car I've got, even <laughs> though I can't quite understand what you're doing. I love yeah. that. I bet you great? something at the end. I bet you that is an anacronym. And I bet it's something like video repair or... P-I-V-R. P-I-V-R. Any ideas? Nice. Anyone let us know. I just Good love one. that I, I love that. And then you can learn. You can learn. Never too old to learn. I've been learning so much lately. Have you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? About stuff around the house. Well, I, as I did, I mended my um, dishwasher and I felt really good about that. Pulled it right out. Unplugged. Really? Yeah, it was a blockage. Yeah, it was a blockage. I know people don't want to really know about that. <laughs> Your I blockages. Did that. I want to learn how to be sort of doing um, a, a lime and mortar between bricks because it's very expensive. Oh. I learned how to do a little bit of plastering and painted my own front room. And, uh, yeah, and I painted and decorated all the barn doors at my old country place, it's which so I normally satisfying. would have had. And I've been doing my own vegetable garden, which I've never done before. Wow. Right, there we are. I think it's a bit of a list then. <laughs> bit of a list then, love. <laughs> Set the example there. You've been known to be a mother. I have, yes. You're Lots right of watching mother. YouTube videos on how to do that. <laughs> 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 Not really. Energy. It's something we all need almost every second of our lives, and we all know it has a massive environmental impact. But we're buying renewable, so we're doing it right, okay? We're doing our bit. <laughs> Maybe not. As more suppliers are entering the renewables market, there are fears that more electricity is being greenwashed and companies are getting away with it, thanks to complex and outdated policies on energy. Did you know, for example, that they can claim to supply you with renewable energy, but without actually producing or even buying it for you? It's like kind of someone packaging up pesticide laden carrots and labelling them as organic. But Juliet Davenport, founder of Good Energy, wants to stop all this. In fact, she believes each one of us can be the hero of the climate crisis if we are better informed. After starting out as an intern working on energy policy at the European Commission, Juliet soon realised just how political energy was and that climate change wasn't a priority for those old fossils who had the market in their grip. So, in 1999, she set up Good Energy, the UK's first 100% renewable electricity supplier. Today, Good Energy produces its own electricity generated in Britain from the sun, wind, water and bioenergy on their own solar and wind farms, as well as a network of 1,600 renewable generators. But as the market gets more crowded, so the greenwashing increases. A recent report by Scottish Power and Good Energy found that around a third of the electricity we think we're buying green actually isn't. So, what questions do we all need to be asking about who we're buying from in order to buy better? And how do we safeguard against the kind of bad practices that are bamboozling us all? <laughs> Me included. Welcome, Juliet. Listen, before we go in, into big topics, let's go back to the beginning. And you grew up with a dad who was in car racing. This is really sexy. My father was a tea <laughs> salesman. 
<laughs> Juliet's father was in car racing. I have to tell you, though, we're recording in the country because we actually live very near each other in a beautiful part of the Gloucestershire countryside. And Juliet's turned up in a Tesla and she didn't know how to close the door on it. It's a car they've given me because mine needs to go and be fixed. And they've given me this X and it's got these doors that go sideways. You know, like, you know Batman's car that flies off? That's what it's like, isn't and it? And it's all, it's all very well, but it's not too difficult opening them, but it's figuring out how to close them. <laughs> so sit up there on top of your head. I was like, oh my God, this is she far too complicated. I, I was jumping up like some basketball player, but <laughs> Juliet fixed it. So I suppose the question I'd want to ask yourself, you know, you've ended up in work that is really, you know, giving back. And thinking about how we live, thinking about how we consume. Yeah. And yet your early childhood, was there any part of that where you felt this? Or what, what, no. What, no. No, so I mean, me not that. at all. I mean, it's sort of my only early childhood was very much sort of trailing around Europe. I think I spent quite a lot of time in Finland uh, arguing actually with other small children, generally boys. Um, I spent a lot of time on the side of, side of racetracks. I mean, what, what I guess I did learn was I saw innovation in action because yeah. there was a lot of innovation in automotive at that point. And I saw competition, uh, the good side and the bad side of it. And I also saw motivation and people. And, and that was fascinating. I mean, I, I used to sit in the pits and watch mechanics work and which ones worked as a team and which ones got their chests out and um, which ones watched the girls on the pits lanes and which ones didn't. I mean, it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating people watching. You talked about motivation there. It's, and it's, it's, I was thinking about this because often when I talk about the kindness economy, people think there's a bunch of these sort of, you know, hand-holding, let's save the planet. Yeah. Not particularly sharpy, pointy, entrepreneurial, motivated people. Yet, everybody I've interviewed, there is that at the heart of it. This, yes, I'm motivated. Yes, I want to win. Yes, I want to do the best work. And I'm very, very focused on that. Would you say that's been part of how you've worked? Oh, completely, mm. completely. I mean, I think for me, the, the, the shift is what is the end game? Why are you doing it? And um, winning is, well, it's fine, but it, is it enough? I mean, you win to do what? And I think that's, that's the point about purpose. That's the point about the kindness economy mm. is that, that you win and then it, then it goes somewhere. It does something positive for, for a wider society. And that, that's what's exciting. I can understand now why you care so much. Um, when I looked at your area of business, renewable energy, I was absolutely astounded, A, about a lot of the greenwashing, and I'm going to come on to that. But you talking about your early days, you know, with your father and it being a very masculine environment, when you went into this environment, hugely masculine environment yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of old fossils that you found, <laughs> as you mentioned, controlling the energy industry – I mean, what were the problems when you decided to go into renewable energy that were just hitting you and just thinking, how are they even working like this? I, th I think there was a fundamental disbelief that you could deliver power to people's homes in any other way than they already were thinking of. Yeah. I guess it was the absolute arrogance of their knowledge and their way of doing things. And the concept that somebody could do something in a different way or that, or that we could all do something in a different way, it wasn't just about one person, was completely alien to them. And I just, I just remember, and, and also what was also fascinating is that the only way that you could be important was by being really big. 
And yes. that was also really interesting. And I think one of the things that we've proved over the years is that you can make change and you don't need to be the biggest to make change. Yes. Sometimes you can be the smallest yes. and you can still make big change. And you kind of think that possibly the way they've been taught all their lives, the way their expectations have been set by either their upbringing or their education is that that's what expected of them. So if you're an engineer and a lot of people in the energy sector are engineers, that you should know the answers and you build it from the bottom up. And if you can't build it today, then surely it can't happen tomorrow. And there, mm -hmm. there was quite a lot of that thinking. And that classic economics analysis oh, as well. We've talked about this many times, haven't we? Yeah. Which completely misses the point of the rest of the economy, yeah. which is unpriced mainly. And so it was, it was that lack of thinking. And maybe it was just right on that cusp when the timing was that people were starting to think about well, what happens to clean air or what happens to climate change or where are these parts costed in our, in our economy. But how did you start? What made you think, right, I've got to do this? Because just take me back from, from where you were and, and how you got into it. So my dad was actually originally a mathematician. He wasn't, he wasn't a rally driver from the beginning. And I guess I was a scientist from the kickoff and I loved physics. So I did, I did physics at university. And I slightly struggled, probably because I was unleashed onto a university life, which was just so exciting and such fun. I didn't always concentrate on my academic studies, I have to admit. Oh, I'm glad you said that. Otherwise, <laughs> Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> She's a great giggler. That's why. No, like, I don't. I don't know anyone who's completely concentrated totally on their university <laughs> studies and not had a good time. We've got to have a good time in life, haven't we? No, completely. Um, but also, I found it really difficult to find any part of the science that I really enjoyed until I got to my third year, and it, it was about the same time as the famous Michael Fish moment. What? There's not going to be a storm. Moment. Yes. <laughs> It was completely that. My God. So we're talking late 80s. Late 80s. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, and I don't know. I can't, well, I can't really Michael remember. Michael Fish was a, a, a weather presenter. He was a, yeah, yeah, he was a weatherman. And the weatherman. Greatly respected. I think he was the BBC one. I can't he remember. He was, yeah. And uh, we had the biggest storm ever in history. It was the storms of where people's literally, there were people who woke up and their shed had gone flying off. Like, you know, like in The Wizard of Oz when it goes. It was incredible storm. And he went on air and he didn't say there was going to be a storm at all. In fact, he said it was going to be... It was going to miss us. And he, it was, it was a woman us. on the phone, don't you remember? <laughs> he said, we're in a hurricane. He said, that's not possible, madam, or something <laughs> on live was. TV. Um, any, anyway, Fish. so I got, I got to study atmospheric physics. And part of studying that, we studied the Michael Fish incident, which was fascinating. <laughs> that's great. But, but also you start to learn about climate change. And I think it was that moment and it was beginning to come through in the press as well you could start to see just little Sunday afternoon Sunday magazine articles mm. that started to touch in this area and so it was a kind of combination of those two that I sort of had this moment of wow this is something I want to get involved in and it was the only subject I did well at in my degree I have to say <laughs> so you, you loved it yeah because I loved it and I took a while after I left university to figure out what to do, but that, that was definitely the turning point. Was it straight from university that you went in? No, no, yeah. not Where at all. I, I had a very wandering path at okay. that point. How um, long did you wander for? I wandered for, oh God, how was I? I must have wandered for about six years, I yeah. think. I mean, I did bits and pieces that took me closer, but it, it, was, it was not a direct path. Um, I went and worked in the West Indies for six months. I decided I definitely didn't want to work in travel at that point. Um, I went and worked in sports PR, in fact, 
Um, in fact, doing lotto football boots, I remember. That was one of our, our guys. That sounds hideous. Olympus Outdoor World. Do you remember them? I do remember Yes, them. we did the PR for them. So, I mean, nothing to do with where I eventually ended up, but gave me a really good grounding in communications and capability in that area. And then I decided to do economics because with a physics degree, you can be a scientist but what I could see was if you wanted to solve the climate problem, you need to look at the economy and figure out what business could do in it. And so I went off and did a degree in economics. And halfway through that, I went off and worked in energy policy at the European Commission as an intern, which was brilliant. Food is amazing. Um, food's quite important in my life. Same here. <laughs> and um, I, I was incredibly lucky because I got this amazing grounding in geopolitics of energy and understanding how the industry worked next to the regulators, next to policy and how it all synced in together. And once I finished my degree, I then worked in renewable energy. I started working in renewable energy after that point. Which would have been, by the way, the noise in the background, we're sitting in our garden, you see, because it's a beautiful day. And I thought, I'm going to record outside. And my kestrels nested. I had four little baby ones and one fell down the other day and we had to put it back up. And kestrels claws, I'll tell you, you don't want to do that without a pair of really hearty gloves on. It was just to prove that we're out here on the outside and having a lovely time. So you go into it, just get so you decide to start your own renewable energy company. I mean, that's huge. How on earth do you start that? And what was it like then going into this male dominated industry? So I guess, I mean, I'd grown up in a motor industry, which is obviously male dominated. I'd gone to university and did a science subject physics, which yeah. is also male dominated. So it didn't feel like a big transition into this sector because it was kind of what I'd seen and what I'd experienced to that point. Um, in terms of setting it up, I guess I, wor I worked in consultancy for a little bit and I got I wrote a lot of reports, which was great. And they were kind of influential, I guess. But they always used to sit on a shelf and I always used to feel slightly incapacitated yeah, as a yeah, result yeah. of it. It's like, well, what's the action plan? And um, I was presenting one particular report. I was in Athens and I was talking to some people. I was kind of getting animated about the point of consumer and, and customer and what role could they play in this? Because we always talk about policy or the industry, but actually the person who uses energy is you and me. And I turned around, I probably had a few glasses of champagne by this point, maybe. <laughs> And uh, and I met this German entrepreneur who had kind of a similar idea. And so he wanted to do it in Germany, but he was up for funding it in the UK. Wow. And and that's where the idea sparked from. Yeah, completely, completely. So you're sitting in this. This was just completely tangential. This is, you were there and you were doing this presentation. Yeah. And then they went, this guy said, heard you talking about it. And they went, OK, yeah. let's do this together. Yeah. Um. Every day I'm trying to make my choices in life better for this planet. And this greenwashing, I couldn't believe a recent report by you at Good Energy and Scottish Power found that in fact, a third of the electricity renewable is in fact greenwashed. I went straight onto your site and looked at a blog post of one very big company that's doing it and only 4% of what they actually do is totally renewable. Um, how on earth... Are companies, A, getting away with this? And B, what would you say to anybody that's trying to change their energy provider? How do we know as just, you know, a regular shopper around her? Well, just to go, how did it happen in the first place? I mean, I think 
For a long time, we've seen energy as a commodity, as something that you should buy as cheaply as possible. And that's come through the regulation. It's come through the politicians. And it's only really recently, despite the fact that Good was started 20 years ago, that a wider part of the public has really seen it as a way to go green. And I think the issue has been is over the years, we've managed to get sort of policies in place to protect greenwashing. And about four or five years ago, a loophole opened up. And to be honest, we were doing something else and I didn't notice it. So I feel really bad that I didn't notice that loophole. When you say a loophole opened up, a loophole in policy? Yeah, in the regulation, which allowed people to basically buy these certificates rather than buying power from renewable energy. A lot of people exploited that loophole. And that's where we got to the situation of greenwashing. Um, What's great is actually there's a big movement now to kind of push back and go, no, this is greenwashed. I mean, if you want to buy greenwash, fine. Um, but this is truly, you're going to be making a difference. How do I find out? How do I just, I'm um, so anyone. So, U-Switch is, actually has just launched. Um, who has? U-Switch, which is the switching service. U-Switch. Yeah. U-Switch.com. And they have a green ranking and they rank it by how much okay. is bought directly from renewable sites. Okay. So, anybody who wants to change can go on U-Switch and they'll know that this is legit stuff that they're yes, being told. Exactly. Okay. It's like, you know, so much of what we look at in the fashion industry. And, you know, people just giving out this messages to see, to be seen to be doing good. And yeah. it's, I don't know which is worse, whether they were total bastards and not doing good and just getting, just <laughs> obviously not doing good or actually pretending they are. It's got to be worse, isn't it? It's, it's interesting. I, th- I think it's a really good call. I think sometimes the ones who are, who are saying they're doing it, but not really doing it, you can keep holding them to account and they have to keep moving along. The ones who say, I don't care, you'll never persuade them to so do So which anything. are the ones that you think are doing well, doing good? So doing good, well, obviously good. Good um, energy, that's Juliet's, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, of course. I think even some of the bigger ones. So Scottish Power has done a lot of investment yeah. in renewable energy. They've done a huge amount. Um, I think there are smaller firms like sort of Ecotricity and Green Energy who are doing some good. I think there's some of the ones that have been greenwashed who are looking to change. Mm. So hopefully we'll see them sort of move into some of these better areas. People like Octopus um, who are starting to look at what more they can do. They so were the hopefully- best though, are they? So they're actually changing so they're they're moving yeah. but i mean at the right now i think we're the top of that because that's what we commit to 100 percent, and that's what we do it's really funny when you said at the beginning you said often you know we've measured everything by the size of corporations and therefore you were just too small a player to make the noise and actually ha- affect the market or affect change and interestingly though that i've been finding the more i've been doing this and looking at businesses and entrepreneurial businesses that are starting up the really big changes coming from the small yeah. and who are pushing it. And it's that voice that we need to keep going on this because the big, interestingly, is, is a bit like, you know, referred to GDP and growth. That's the only measure that it is on. It doesn't measure anything else of social impact, what it does to our planet or how it creates ecosystems of work and communities. I mean, it just doesn't measure anything else. When you were studying economics did you click that did you think this yeah. this can't be right the way that we are measuring what is success and and so i did as part of my economics degree i did environmental economics which then was very flawed as well because what it tried to do is put a price on everything and because that's uh, all we know though isn't it price yes and, 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 and it makes people feel happier yeah. and we tried to put a price on carbon tried to put a price on people's lives and there was a huge there were students who uh, took over the whole of the economics department in london university because they decided to put a price on a life 
in Western Europe comparison to Africa as different. And of course, that, that I mean, how, yeah, how can you do that? Mm. So that that's the problem with that pricing approach on economics. But I think you have to start thinking uh, the whole point about the fact that a growth line continues to go up does it go up forever? When does it stop? What's its limits? And, and none of that is considered in economics. Interesting in physics, it is because you have the limitations of the planet. And that's part of what you study in atmospheric physics. And so it's really interesting having gone from a science that looked at limitation to economics, which just assumes everything can keep going forever, which is just balmy, basically. Talk to me how you create your renewable energy, because I think this is fascinating. How is it, how is it created? So there are, there are four main sources. Um, wind power, which is fairly obvious. Wind blows across a turbine and it turns it, generates power. And then solar, so that's generating power from the sun. A lot of that, obviously, in the south. Majority, sort of Dorset, Wiltshire, Cornwall, kind of all those counties, did you have people, you know, saying we don't want those being built there? Because there was a lot of that, wasn't there? I, if I oh, remember. Yes. I mean, we did, we, we got it. We got... Don't be building that on our site, Juliet. <laughs> I don't care. Oh, saving the planet. I mean, what was hilarious about it is I used to have people coming to talk to me about other people's sites. It's like, it's not my site. I'm not trying to build it there. Oh. <laughs> That's true. Oh, but I had exactly that. Exactly. Yeah. Probably paraphrasing the... the uh, <laughs> The voice perfectly. So we've lived here for 30 odd years and have a lovely view. We don't want those there. Yeah, exactly. But I find now I look at them and it makes me feel really joyous. Yes. And and what you found is there was a lot of work that was done, um, which basically showed that the anxiety in people before they were built was very high. Once they were built, they were most people absolutely fine. I mean, solar, you can't see solar. If you build solar properly, you, you should put um, big hedges around it, do a load of biodiversity on them, and you shouldn't be able to see them. Um, I think the biggest one we did was a 175-acre one on a disused airfield. And we actually kept, you know, the um, watchtower in the middle. We kept that preserved so you could go out the watchtower and look over the whole of the site. But... Um, yeah, and, and what you can do is do amazing biodiversity projects under the sites as well. So you start to restore the soils in those areas. So there are lots of fantastic things you can do with solar oh, and wind, actually. And what about the price of this? You know, if people are listening going, it's it more expensive. What are we talking about? What's the realism of this? So if you want to buy from renewables today, if you want to buy a sort of pure renewables product that's supporting the future, it is slightly more expensive. If you want to generate your own power, if you have space to do it yourself, you can probably generate power cheaper than if you buy it off the grid today. Seriously? From a solar panel. Really? Yeah. So people should be looking at investing in that. I, I think so. I mean, my view is it's got to that point again where the price of panels have come down so much that if you can, if you can find some space to put a panel, then it's probably worth putting one in. And what about you in the rest of your life? Have you found yourself since doing this actually changing and making your values translate into other parts of your life? Well, I think actually what's quite interesting is I mean, the, watching sort of motorsport in action as a kid um, definitely showed me behaviours that I didn't want to see potentially yeah. in my life in the future. And I think I built an ethical base of how I wanted to behave in an organisation. Um and going to work, we spend a huge amount of time going to work. One, we should enjoy it. Two, we should be respected for what we do within it. And three, we should create a place where people can do their best work. Mm. And generally, 
fear and anxiety is not a space to do that in. And I think most businesses have moved on, although I still hear horror stories today. Somebody was just telling me uh, they're only allowed a one hour, hour break. They all have to take their break at the same time. And um, when somebody came back late, they got asked to drop and do 10 press-ups. It's like, serious today. Yes. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah. But I think that culture is still there. I think. Oh, no, I, I'm, I have honestly have still seen this. And it's extraordinary because that fear and anxiety must be at the top of those businesses in order to do that, which creates fear and anxiety in the people within business. I often have said it to my children, what would you do if you didn't have fear? What choice would you make? Because it often tells you the answer, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Yeah. And yet so often when you see it within business and you're working within a corporation within business and you know that those decisions at the top are being made for that, it's a very difficult thing to live with or move out of if you're a young you know, person just yeah. going out into the world of business. I agree. So did you, in your when you started up this business, what was the mix of men and women? Was that, was that something you found important? And do you think that a lot of your kind of feminine instincts – made this a business that was easier to have a great culture within? In terms of the original people who came to join me, um, first of all, when you when you set up a business that nobody really knows how it's going to work, it's a challenge of business, um, you you have to persuade people to come and work for you at that point. Yes. I mean, it's as you grow up, it's quite interesting. You have to grow up in terms of your hiring skills because to begin with, you're on sales mode and you sell. And actually, the original team we built was, there were a lot of women in that original team. And I think my first employee was another woman. I think we probably had, a, within two or three years, we probably had a 60 to 40 ratio women to men. Um but over time, it then changed. It was really interesting and it caught up with me. And I suddenly turned around and went, oh. And I sat in a room with a senior team and I looked around the room and there were probably out of, say, 15 people, maybe five female faces. Oh, my God. So you started off with more women and then it sort of changed. It graduated. And I mean, we ended up having to take over another business that went into insolvency. So we picked up somebody else's organization. Oh, I see. Um, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. we integrated. Yeah. So we so we originally outsourced a lot of the work that we did. And then we insourced it and brought in another organization. And when you're going through things like that, you're just focused on existing and surviving. And it's not till you come out afterwards that you look around the table and go, oh, um, and actually, I asked for the data. So I asked uh, the finance director for some data on this. And he got so upset with me. He said, what are you accusing me of? I'm like, oh, I'm not no. accusing you of anything. I just I like just to I just want to check in and make sure that we're doing the right thing. I'll tell you why I asked. We loved it um, when my team were trying to get set up this time with you. And we were emailing you to set up the interview. And I noticed your gorgeous sign off. And it wrote, sent from my iPhone. Please don't feel any need to respond until the time that suits you. My iPhone allows me to work flexibly. So I've sent this at a time to suit me when you wrote to us, which is really yeah. wonderful. You know, was that something that you thought I must write this because I, I'm I saw somebody else with something similar. And so that's what I yeah. did. Yeah. But but yes, because I, I... And that made you feel happy seeing someone else do that. And you thought, I'm yes. going to take that. Yeah, no, completely. Beautiful because, touch. Completely. Because how many movies have we seen where, yeah. where the, the dreadful boss makes their PA work? It's sort of devil's wear Prada. Uh, so why are you looking at me like that? I'm not. I'm just... <laughs> Hey, hang on a minute. Stop, stop. No, that was my favourite line that my daughter remembers. That was she has that. She goes to the PA and she goes, "Can you give me that piece of paper I had in my hand two days ago?" <laughs> She's looking through the bins. Can you find that piece of paper? I 
had in my hand two days ago. <laughs> I love that. I mean, but 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 the point is that yeah. there's there's times when I will check in on stuff or want to look at stuff. I don't want somebody else to respond then, but I don't want to have to remember to respond the next day. That's exactly how I feel, and it's a brilliant thing though because I remember I used to hate it, and it was a, a, a boss who really did bully me when I worked in, in the corporate world, and he would send an email on Friday. Yeah. And I was left feeling sick all weekend. Oh, no. Yeah, it was a horrible thing to do. And I remember so vividly, you know, the things that he did just were insidiously pulling me down. And that, what you've just said, and I love it. I think I'm going to pick it up. Watch out, guys. I'm going to pick up this one because I unload it off my mind. But it doesn't mean that you have to get back to me. And I don't want you to feel, even if it's a Sunday or a Saturday, I just want to be able to say, hey. So I think that's a beautiful sign up. I, I, I understand it totally now. That's a really lovely sign off. And finally, I, I suppose, um, a look for you for the future. You sit on the board of Innovate UK, the body that literally fosters innovation in business. What kinds of innovations are you seeing right now and in what areas? I'd love to see that. And and is there hope? Is there hope, Juliet? <laughs> is there hope? So there are three things I've really pushed for since I've been at Innovate. Obviously, diversity and inclusion, really important because innovation tech has tended to be quite a male white domain sort of making sure that we've got inclusion and diversity coming through really important in our innovation yeah yeah, full stop um secondly i believe in smes uh, small and medium-sized enterprises they are where creativity happens in the business sector and so really pushing to make sure that we get them represented in in funding and support from government And then finally, zero carbon really has been quite underrepresented for a long time in terms of innovation spend. So really pushing that area. And I think we're beginning to see that come through. So I think think we're seeing the innovation agencies set up to be much better capable of managing diversity, inclusion and small and medium-sized enterprises. What we have to make sure is we have to let go. In innovation, And sometimes people try to hold on, what is an innovation strategy? It's like, innovation is messy. It's, it's like a playground. You've got to go and chuck a bunch of things in, mix them around and see what happens. And you have to fail sometimes. Yes, completely. And um, I mean, that was a message we tried to get through to, to ministers quite a few times and some, some of the more senior civil servants, because if you don't get messy, you don't make change. You can make lots of incremental small changes, mm. but that's not enough to deal with some of these challenges that we're dealing with today. And so I think, I think there's some interesting things coming through. Am I, uh, I, I am actually really heartened by the next generation. Oh, same here. Um, I, I sort of, I do a few mentoring things uh, with different organizations and I've come across some brilliant entrepreneurs in this new zero carbon space. And I just think they're going to be some of the people that lead on this. We need to encourage them to make sure they get innovation funding to help them with their ideas um, and really push hard on, on making big changes. And that's what I'm excited about. Juliet Devonport, thank you. Thank you for joining us at The Kindness Economy. Thank you. What a woman. Oh, Juliet, bright, funny and committed. And she's also, to use that very popular phrase, a disruptor. We had a chat after we finished recording and there was a couple of things that she said to me that really stayed with me, and I'm paraphrasing it here, but we think challenger brands have to be big in order to really create impact. But in fact, it's often the small brands, the small businesses who are doing the most work on this. Can you imagine, this was a woman who went into a male-dominated industry and her colleagues saw a young, bright-spirited, questioning woman 
who got knocked for her aspirations to do things differently. And we've all had that during our career. And I, I often speak, especially to women, who feel that they can't have a voice, but what they feel deeply inside of them would be knocked or criticised, and so they remain quiet. I've been there. I understand that line that's often, this is the way business is. Whatever business you're talking about, whether it's from energy, where Juliet is, to fashion, to retail, to food, it's not. There is no way that business is. Nothing is fixed in stone. Society, culture, the way we live, buy and sell, they're constantly morphing into currents that are very different to those that went before. That's what we need to be connected to. The currents, the shifts of how people are feeling. And I agree with Juliet that it's often those small businesses with their little antennae that are out there feeling this and then coming up with the ideas to challenge. Their scope might not be as expansive. The money they make might not be as large, but their aspirations are the biggest. And of course, there are big businesses who are working to create real change. But it's those little voices that we must never quieten. If you have that little voice, don't push it down. Speak up. Because that's what the kindness economy is all about. Challenging every business and each one of us to do better. Join me next week on The Kindness Economy when I'll be talking to Richard Walker, the Managing Director of Iceland, a big business that's also becoming a significant challenger in the world of food and sustainability.